This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following message is part one of two of a Reformation Day lecture by Professor Brian Heisinger. It is entitled, Of God, Through God, to God. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to deliver this lecture tonight. We will have to be good children of the Reformation this Friday evening and settle in for a good amount of doctrine. I have an outline. I hope it's been distributed so that anyone who wants one can have one. I don't know that you'll be able to take notes or anything on it. It's not that big and conducive to that, but it's a map to show you where we're at and where we are going. I want to begin this evening by explaining the title of my lecture. First of all, when I refer to our covenant doctrine as Protestant Reformed churches, or the title of the lecture is Of God, Through God, and To God, our covenant doctrine as Protestant Reformed churches. I do not mean that this doctrine I present tonight is the exclusive possession of the Protestant Reformed churches, such as to mean then that no one else anywhere confesses this or may confess it because it is ours. But I mean this is God's doctrine, the doctrine we have historically confessed as Protestant Reformed churches because God in his grace has given this doctrine to us through our study of the scripture and confessions. It's his doctrine and would to God that all men everywhere would join us in our confession. Furthermore, when I speak of our doctrine as Protestant Reformed churches, I do not mean that we have a binding document like a creed that explicitly and authoritatively and comprehensively sets forth the whole of our covenant doctrine. We have the Declaration of Principles from the 1950s, which demonstrates that an unconditional covenant of grace with the elect alone is the binding covenant doctrine of the Reformed Confessions. However, we do not have a fourth form of unity. We do not have a confession of the covenant. We do not have some synodically approved, officially adopted treatise that comprehensively sets forth our covenant doctrine from A to Z. When I speak of our covenant doctrine as Protestant Reformed churches tonight, I'm referring to that doctrine that we have always confessed. From our, <clears throat> from our origin. That doctrine that has been passed down through the generations as a heritage. That doctrine that was challenged and tested and refined, especially during the controversy and the schism of the 1950s. That doctrine that is set forth in all of our writings, in the standard bearer, going all the way back to the very beginning and in our theological books and works, that doctrine that has been delivered from the pulpits and the catechism 
lecterns, the doctrine I have been taught my whole life. And in the theological seminary, the doctrine I taught in my ministry, and the doctrine that I am by the grace of God resolved to teach in our theological seminary, the doctrine I pray that our children will come to learn and know and love. I am speaking of the covenant doctrine that was articulated by our founding fathers, particularly Herman Hooksma, who has been called the doctor of the covenant. Hooksma's main contribution to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ was his development of a distinctively reformed covenant doctrine. Hooksma consciously developed his understanding of the doctrine of the covenant in the framework of the Reformed confessions to which he was happily bound. And he rigorously and rightly applied the Reformed doctrines of sovereign grace to the covenant. However, he did not bind himself to the Reformed tradition as it was carried along by the Reformed theologians. So at various points, he departed from the tradition in order to adhere to the Scripture and the confessions. If you want to know what our doctrine of the covenant is, then really all you have to do is read. Read. And read Huxma especially. Huxma wrote, quote, if you ask me what is the most peculiar treasure of the Protestant Reformed churches, I answer without any hesitation their peculiar view of the covenant. Now, what is their peculiar conception? Briefly stated, it teaches that God realizes His eternal covenant of friendship in Christ, the firstborn of every creature and the first begotten of the dead, organically and antithetically along the lines of election and reprobation and in connection with the organic development of all things." Unquote. March 15, 1950. Read Hooksma. And that's not, not to slight Danhoff and especially his brilliant article on the idea of the covenant and Uphoff and any others who have come after Hooksma. But read especially Hooksma. And you do not have to be Protestant Reformed in order to know what our doctrine of the covenant is. All you have to do is read and even the most hostile enemies of our doctrine of the covenant know exactly what our doctrine of the covenant is. Even if they do not necessarily faithfully present it in their attacks against it, they know exactly what it is. In fact, some enemies of our covenant doctrine know it better than some Protestant Reformed members. And that's not good. Read. And we who preach and teach must preach and teach. In preparing for this lecture, I consulted an article from a theological journal written by the Dutch theologian Peter Rowendal in the year 2001 entitled Hermann Huxma, Leven en Opvarigen von en controversiel theolog, which is in the English, Hermann Huxma, Life and Views 
of a controversial theologian. Roendahl was writing only 19 years ago at the dawn of the 21st century to the Dutch Reformed churches in the Netherlands, and he acknowledged that almost no one in the Netherlands knows of the Protestant Reformed churches and of Hermann Huxma. So he was presenting the distinctive doctrines of the PRC and Huxma, including especially Huxma's doctrine of the covenant. And Rowandow's presentation is fair and accurate, and much of what is contained in his journal article is contained in my lecture tonight. In his conclusion, Rowandow writes, quote, whether men now welcome the theology of Huxma with agreement or reject it with disgust. No one can deny that he thoroughly knew the view of his opponents, that he substantiated his criticism with well-founded arguments, and that he managed to give a coherent and consistent alternative. Unquote. Indeed, coherent and consistent and confessional is the doctrine of the covenant articulated by Huxma and by us as Protestant Reformed churches. So when I speak of our covenant doctrine tonight, I'm simply referring to that doctrine that we have always confessed. It is in the teachings. Now concerning the first and the main part of the title of my speech, Of God, Through God, and To God. This is, as you immediately recognize, taken from the glorious doxology of Romans 11, verse 36. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. If all things are of God, and through God, and to God, then certainly the covenant is of, through, and to God. The single most important truth of our doctrine of the covenant is our simple confession that it is God's covenant. It is not the covenant of man. It is not the covenant of God and man. It is the covenant of God with Man. Concerning this covenant, God Himself repeatedly says in the Scriptures, as He did, for example, to Abraham, My covenant. I will establish My covenant. I will establish My covenant for an everlasting covenant so that this covenant never becomes the covenant of man. It never becomes the covenant of God and man. But it is now and into all eternity God's covenant with man. The covenant of which we speak tonight is the covenant of grace, that relationship of intimate communion between God and all of His elect people, including their spiritual seed, in Jesus Christ. This covenant is conceived, ordained, established, maintained, preserved, and perfected by God alone, so that the covenant is of God, it is through God, and it is to God. Finally, by way of introduction, I want to say something about my purpose with this lecture. I am well aware of the fact that we as Protestant Reformed churches 
have been navigating our way through some fairly turbulent times. And my purpose tonight is simply to ask you to stop for just a moment. Stop. And put everything else away. Unclutter the whole of your mind. Stop. And listen. What do we believe as Protestant Reformed churches? What do we believe about the covenant? What do we love? And what do we want to maintain and maintain for our children and children's children? And therefore, what do we not believe? What do we hate? And what do we oppose as long as we have breath? What is our covenant doctrine? In the first part of the speech, I want to lay out the main lines, the broad lines of our covenant doctrine. And then in part two, I want to zero in on the doctrinal issue of the last few years in our churches. And then as friends, and that's what the covenant is all about, friendship, as friends. Wherever I go in our churches, I view those in whose presence I am as friends. As friends in the covenant, let us go forth together Strong in God's service. Strong in God's might to conquer all evil and to stand for the right doctrine of the covenant. So let's begin. First, the covenant is of God. God is the source. I call your attention to two respects in which this is true. First, The covenant is of God's being as to its essence. Now, its essence, the covenant is a relationship of intimate communion between God and His elect people in Jesus Christ. The covenant is not a promise. It is certainly not a conditional promise. The covenant is not a temporary way or means that is put in place to get people to heaven. The covenant is not a contract, a cold contract with conditions and stipulations, and certainly not one that's been patterned after the contracts of the ancient Near Eastern neighbors of Old Testament Israel, as some theologians teach. The covenant is essentially a warm relationship, and it is this because it has its origin in God's being and it is patterned after God's own life. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is eternally and essentially in Himself a covenant God who enjoys perfect loving fellowship in Himself. The Father has a tender bosom and in that bosom, in the warmth of that bosom, eternally dwells the Son. John 1 verse 18 so that the Father and the Son are forever toward one another, face to face, and in the Spirit, they breathe after, they pant after one another in love. They delight in each other. God lives a covenant life in Himself. So when God says to His people, I will establish My covenant with thee, He is promising to be the friend sovereign 
who will take His people as friends' servants into the everlasting enjoyment of His own covenant life. Creatures taken into His covenant life. The Dutchman Roendahl rightly noted that the only covenant Huxma will recognize is the eternal communion of the Trinity. Rich. So very rich. The covenant is of God's being. And secondly, the covenant is of God's counsel. All that the covenant is and forever shall be must be traced back to God's eternal, sovereignly free counsel. In His counsel, God determined to glorify Himself by revealing His own covenant life outside of Himself, by making creatures, and by making creatures partakers of His covenant life, not ultimately through Adam, the first man who was of this earth and earthy, but ultimately in the last Adam, who is the Lord from heaven, in whom the human and the divine come together, in whom the creature and the Creator are united in one person, God will take His people and He will lift them up into the highest heights of the new heavens and the new earth to live with Him eternally in Jesus Christ. And of that, Adam had no conception. Huxma always maintained that for the realization of this glorious purpose, God taking creatures into His covenant life, God eternally appointed the man, Christ Jesus, to be the head of the covenant. Use the language now of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, to be the firstborn of every creature by whom all things would consist and in whom all the fullness of God would dwell. And God eternally elected a people to be given to Christ And God ordained that the elect would be created in time and history. And then through that deep and antithetical way of sin and grace, all of the elect would be recreated in Jesus Christ. We'd be taken into God's covenant of friendship by Jesus Christ. And for the realization of this covenant in Christ, God eternally reprobated Others as vessels of wrath fitted to destruction in the way of their own sin. On this earth, the reprobate serve the covenant. The elect and the reprobate all live together as one organism of the human race. And the reprobate, whether they are the reprobate of the ungodly world, or whether they are the reprobate like Esau and Judas Iscariot, right in the church visible, the reprobate not only oppose God's covenant, but through their opposition, they serve God's covenant. God does not will the salvation of the reprobate. God does not include them in His covenant. God does not make conditional promises to the reprobate, God sovereignly ordains that the reprobate shall by their own willful wickedness 
serve his elect, serve his covenant. And the greatest demonstration of this truth occurred when the kings of the earth stood up. And when the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against God's holy child Jesus, whom God had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever God's hand and God's counsel determined before to be done. Acts 4.26-28 Never did the enemies of the covenant so show their hatred for and opposition to the covenant as when they murdered its head, Jesus Christ. And never was it so clearly manifested that the enemies of the covenant serve the covenant. About this teaching of Huxma, Rowandau said, quote, his radical position, especially in connection with God's dealings with the reprobate, ensured that many detested his theology. But it is proven that detesting is easier than refuting. And in his eternal counsel, God ordained all things that shall ever come to pass in heaven and on earth. So that, for example, the outbreak of COVID-19 here in our own country or the upcoming national election or whatever your present suffering is, everything has been ordained by God as a means for the realization of His covenant. Everything serves God's covenant. God's eternal counsel determines everything. And that includes membership in the covenant. And that includes every blessing in the covenant. So that as the canons teach, election is the fountain of every saving good from which proceed faith, holiness, and all other gifts of salvation and finally, eternal life itself. Therefore, nothing we ever possess in the covenant can be earned by our working. But as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 11, verse 7, the election hath obtained it. Everything in us is to be traced back to election. The covenant of God, it is of God of His being, and of His counsel. The covenant is also through God. This expression now refers to the execution of God's eternal counsel. So that God has His eternal plan, but now God also by His power works out that plan. I call your attention to three respects in which the covenant is through God. The promise, the establishment, and the maintenance of the covenant. First of all, the promise of the covenant. Here we could think of the revelation of God's covenant. It is of God and through God. The promise is God's solemn oath that 
He reveals in the Gospel His promise, I will be your God and you shall be My people. That I will. That's God's promise. I will. That promise is fundamentally Christ. The revelation of Christ. I will. That promise comes flowing out of God's eternal heart of love. And it is first revealed in paradise in the mother promise of gospel hope in Jesus Christ to fallen Adam and Eve. I will. That promise runs throughout all of the old dispensation. Of course, then it is clothed in type and shadow. But that promise keeps moving through history and it is fulfilled in principle in Jesus Christ, in His incarnation and death and resurrection and ascension and especially in the pouring out of His Holy Spirit so that Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, comes to live in and to dwell in us forever. God with us. But that promise keeps moving through the whole of the new dispensation until it is fully, fully realized in the second coming of Jesus Christ when He will raise the dead and conduct the final judgment and take all of the elect and bring them into the heights of heaven to live before the face of Jehovah God to dwell in His tabernacle forever and ever. I will. God's promise, I will. It is promiscuously proclaimed everywhere. Prior to the coming of Jesus, of course, that promise was as to its proclamation limited for the most part to the nation of Israel, but now it is proclaimed in all the nations of the earth the promiscuously proclaimed promise is particular so that it is only ever made by God to His elect and to their spiritual seed who are elect. God does not promise all men, I will be your God. He certainly does not conditionally promise all, I will be your God if, you believe. God does not promise all professing Christians who go to church. God does not promise all of the infant children of believers who are brought to be baptized that He will be their God. The promise flows out of the decree of election and is made to the elect alone. The promise is of God and the promise is through God and therefore the promise is steadfast and sure. It is yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And as that promise now runs throughout all of history, through the proclamation of the Gospel, it is spoken to the elect, spoken to them in the heart, and it brings to them all that God has ordained for them in His counsel so that God realizes His covenant through His promise. His promise. And isn't that comforting? Feeble sinners, feeble sinners in a wicked, changing world. This glorious and eternal plan of God, it is not dependent upon you and me. But God realizes His covenant through His promise, His unbreakable promise. 
Secondly, the establishment of the covenant is through God. The covenant that God decrees and that God promises, He actually establishes by making unworthy dead sinners His covenant friends. He brings them into His fellowship as children. The covenant is not established by the will, worth, work, doing, or choice of any sinner. The covenant is sovereignly, unilaterally, unconditionally, which is to say, graciously established by God. He makes us His friends. He does. And the ground for this divine wonder work of God is the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ whereby He paid for all of our sins. He made the atonement. And His victorious resurrection on the third day whereby He emerged from the dead with everlasting righteousness and heavenly life for us so that God can reconcile us unto Himself on the basis of Jesus' work and unite us to Jesus Christ in an unbreakable bond. And that He does in grace. God comes to each elect sinner and He unites them to Christ in that bond that cannot be broken. So that when one is taken into the covenant, he is forever in God's covenant of friendship. To the dead sinner, God brings a new life. To the sinner, God issues His efficacious call, come unto Me. And God draws the sinner to Himself. God bestows the gift of faith. He breathes it into the sinner, so that the sinner knows God and trusts in God. God justifies the sinner with the righteousness of Christ. He sanctifies the sinner by the Spirit of holiness. He preserves the sinner in the covenant. He glorifies the sinner so that he is conformed perfectly body and soul to the head, Jesus Christ. God does. Men might make their own covenants as David and Jonathan did. Covenants established mutually through the will and work of both parties. But in God's covenant, man is no party over against God. God is always the everlasting fountain. And man is always the creature that God made the creature whom God makes to be a thirsty drinker. And God draws that creature to Himself and causes that creature to drink of Him, to be satisfied in Him, and to say, all my fountains are in God. God establishes His covenant. The promise of the covenant is through God. The establishment of the covenant is through God. And now third, the maintenance and preservation of the covenant is of God and through God. Some say that the covenant is unilateral and it is unconditional in its origin. But it is bilateral and it is conditional 
in its operation. So that while God graciously initiates the covenant, initiates the relationship, man is at least partly responsible for preserving it. We reject that notion and we teach that the covenant of God is both established and maintained unilaterally and unconditionally. The friend sovereign sees to it that all of the elect whom He draws into His covenant life live forever in that covenant and actually live the life of the covenant. Now think about the creation. The creation is of God. He created it. But it is also through God as now by His providence He upholds and He governs and He maintains it. The creation is. So that we men and dogs and horses and fireflies and grasshoppers we all live and we move and we have our being in God. Of Him and through Him. Now that's true of the creation, the earthly creation. How much more is that not true spiritually of God's covenant? God maintains the covenant. This sovereign grace does not destroy or diminish our calling in the covenant as responsible, rational, moral creatures. The never-ending charge that is leveled against the unconditional covenant of sovereign particular grace is that we do not do justice to human responsibility. On the contrary, we wholeheartedly teach as an essential element of our covenant doctrine, that we have a calling in the covenant of friendship. As the baptism form puts it, we have our part in the covenant of grace. We are called to believe on God. And woe unto you if you do not believe in God. We are called to repent of our sins, to be sorry to acknowledge them before God. And woe to any man who does not repent. We are called to live the Christian life in all good works. And woe to any man who walks in wickedness. Fundamentally, our calling in the covenant as adults and our children with us in the covenant is to stand for God as His friend, servants, stand for God antithetically over against all that is opposed to God, even right here in our own world-loving flesh. Stand for God in your church life. Stand for God in your work life, in your school life, at the university. As a citizen of the United States of America, stand for God. That's our calling in your marriage when you are out on a date before marriage. Stand for God when you live in your marriage. Stand for God over against all of the wickedness that is promoted by the world and even by the church world, including remarriage after divorce. Stand for God in your marriage. 
Live in such a way that it's plain to everyone all around you that you are against the ungodly world, against false doctrine, against Satan, against immorality. Not because you're anti this and because you're anti that, so anti, but because in the covenant you are for God. And in your fiery trial, God the Father lays His hand upon you. And He takes from you so that you lose something and you are hurting. And all around you are calls to curse God and to murmur against God. Stand for Him. Our sacred calling as friend servants is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. All that we are, we owe to God and to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand for Him then, no matter what suffering that may bring. And what could be more blessed? What could be more blessed than to be the friend, the friend of God? Serving God, worshiping God, and standing for your friend. That's what friends do. We stand for God. But understand, all that we are and all that we do, we are and we do by His grace. If all things are of God and all things are through God, then we can never expect, then we can never expect any credit for any activity we perform or expect to earn something from God because of some activity we perform. We're utterly dependent upon God for everything, for the very breath we breathe, and for our believing and repenting, our loving, our doing of good works for everything. Why do we believe? Because the Spirit of Christ quickens in us a lively faith so that we cannot but believe. Why do we repent? Because the Spirit of Christ convicts us and causes our heart to break in godly sorrow. Why do we obey? Because the Spirit is in us. The Spirit of Emmanuel, God with us, in order to will and to do of God's good pleasure so that we will and we do because the Spirit lives within us. Always our activity is the fruit of God's sovereign, gracious activity. After making offerings for the building of the temple, David thanked God for everything, everything, even for the gift of a willing heart. And David said, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14, now therefore, our God, we thank Thee. We praise Thy glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people? That we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort. For all things come of Thee, and of Thine own have we given Thee. What do we give to God that He has not first given to us? Never can anyone come and say to God, I deserve something, some compensation for what I have done. 
the whole life of the covenant that we live is through God as He sovereignly maintains and preserves His covenant with us. Finally, the covenant is to God. and That means all the glory goes to God. That's where it begins in God's counsel. That's where it ends always. To God be the glory. Not to man, not to any angel. To God be the glory. This must live in our consciousness so that we are jealous for the glory of God. We must repudiate any covenant doctrine that gives man a reason to boast. Any doctrine that makes the covenant in any sense of man and through man and therefore to man. But we may never repudiate any erroneous covenant concept simply for the sake of repudiation because we are jealous to maintain the glory of our friend Sovereign and His Christ who is our head. Everything about the covenant is of God and through God. Whether that be His salvation of us and our children, whether that He be His deliverance of this present groaning creation and His refashioning of it, the new heavens and the new earth, whether that be His use of the devil and all of the ungodly to serve His purposes, everything, absolutely everything is of God and through God so that everything might redound to the glory of God now and eternally in Jesus Christ. Whether any man has as his goal and his purpose that God have the glory, it doesn't matter. It's God's purpose. And God accomplishes his purpose. Read the book of Revelation, especially. God will get all of the glory. And is it not an astonishing display of his powerful grace that we glory hungry sinners who love to have the preeminence? We are so transformed by His grace that His purpose becomes our purpose. And the sincere desire of our heart is not unto us, O God, but unto Thee be all of the glory in all things. Now let us bow down in adoration before this great God tonight. Can you imagine if Solomon in all of his glory would go out of his palace and get down on his hands and knees in the dirt and with his pointer finger start digging around in the soil and find a little, little baby worm and say, I love you. You are my friend. And I will protect you care for you forever. And then Solomon takes that little baby worm into his palace and he lavishes that little worm with all of his love and all of the luxuries of his palace. Infinitely greater is God's covenant. God comes to us as creatures of the dust and He takes us into His covenant life. 
But you see, we are not only small and weak, we are sinful. More sinful than we even understand. Sinful. Even the good things that we do, we corrupt because we are so sinful. We are so unfaithful in this relationship. It's shameful. We can be so haughty and puffed up in our knowledge and so self-centered and so cold and careless toward our God and His doctrine and so spiritually lethargic and so worldly so antagonistic toward others in our pride, so prone to hate each other by nature, so ungrateful for what Christ did in His infinite sacrifice. And God takes us into His perfect covenant fellowship and everlasting tabernacle. I would never take us. Sorry. I would never take you. And you would never take me. But God. God is so gracious. Purely gracious. God takes us into His covenant. Us and our children and our grandchildren in the line of generations. He clothes us with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And even gives us hatred for our sins and the holy desire that He be glorified. Bow down before this great God tonight and say, to God be the glory now and forever through Jesus Christ. Of God, through God, and to God is the covenant. This is the end of part one of Professor Heisinger's Reformation Day Lecture. Tune in again next week for part two and the conclusion. To close, our psalm choir will sing Psalter number 372.
Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page, and you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.